from the time that Jesus Christ establishes church until the general judgment. Now, this might seem at first blush to entail a contradiction. Um, how is it that we can attain to something that has already existed for two millennia? The answer to this question is very simple. We attain to it by accepting it. We attain to it by conforming ourselves to it. And this is true of so much of Christianity. It involves the affecting on earth of already existing heavenly realities or the ongoing application in time to new matter of forms that already are perfected by God. Uh, liturgy, the sacraments, the mass, all work this way. What Jesus finished on the cross is still being carried out here on earth. That's not an oxymoron. That is rather a profound Christian mystery. When Jesus gave the church the gift of unity, he made it one of her essential marks that cannot be taken away. Christ's church is, after all, as we say in the creed, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The baptized who leave the church via a sin against faith, like heresy or like superstition, uh, or a sin against charity, like schism, uh, they do not destroy Christian unity, they merely leave it. So they leave the church, either by way of schism, which is a sin against charity, or by way of heresy, which is a sin against faith. Or they could uh, leave it by apostasy, which is the entire and complete repudiation of the Christian name. In the Bull Unum Sanctum, Pope Boniface VIII compared the unity of the church to Christ's seamless garment, that garment that um, the, the, the Roman soldiers gambled for because they didn't want to tear it because it was all sewn in one piece. This garment cannot be torn or rent, but it can clothe more or fewer members at various times, depending upon who enters and leaves the church. Whether the militant church on earth has comparatively greater or lesser numbers at any given time, she remains perfect in her divine constitution. In that end, in, in the end, rather, in the end, when, when, when everything ends in the church, the membership of the church triumphant in heaven will be made up of the exact number of the predestined. So even the number of members will be perfect. I mean, God already knows that number. Uh, it already exists uh, in his ever-present now. Uh, in actual time, it hasn't yet been fulfilled. Uh, because of certain practices carried out in the name of ecumenism, Many of the faithful are very confused about all of this. Joe Catholic in the pew has a fluffy notion of what Christian unity is. He might think it means a sort of inter-church cooperation in feeding the hungry or getting together for discussions which conclude in ironic slogans like this, the points on which we agree are vastly more important than the points on which we differ. Uh, a particular slogan that Brother Francis hated. <laughs> I remember him telling me how he had heard heard that slogan repeated over and over again at the University of uh, of Beirut, where he attended years ago, which became kind of an ecumenical enclave um, when he was there in the 30s. Um, 
if he could articulate, again, we're back to Joe Sixpack in the pew here, if he could articulate the common misconception of Christian unity, Joe might say that it is the greater cooperation, the mutual respect, and the love between all Christians, no matter what their denomination. So when he prays for church unity, Joe might actually be praying for more of that kind of thing rather than what, say, Father Paul of Graymore and his uh, fellows uh, were praying when they instituted the church unity octave. Two totally different things and representing two completely different outlook looks on the church, representing two completely different conceptions of church unity. Mind you, if Father Paul of Graymore began with a, with a bad conception of church unity, which he did, okay, so um, as an Anglican, his, historically, there were Anglicans who believed in the so-called three-branch theory. And what is the three-branch theory? The three-branch theory was a theory that rose up in a, in a group of conservative Anglicans who, looking towards, the, looking at the history of the church, realized that Protestantism was an abomination. They realized that the Protestant conceptions regarding liturgy, for instance, regarding the holy sacrifice of the Mass, regarding the existence of priests and bishops, seven sacraments, this kind of thing, um, they they saw that as completely ahistorical, the Protestant outlook on these things, the mainstream Protestant outlook on these things. So they believed in seven sacraments, they believed in bishops and priests, they believed in holy orders, they believed in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And their hang-up would be, okay, the papacy is the Pope the head of the church. Well, historically, they all knew that the Pope was the Pope. They all knew that there was the office of the papacy, but they sort of minimized it and relegated it to something like what the Orthodox believe in, the primus inter pares, the first among equals, that he was the patriarch of the West. He was a very important man. Rome was, after all, one of the great ancient Christian seas, along with Antioch and Alexandria, and then later on they added Jerusalem and Constantinople. So what these Anglicans did, and these guys grew up out of the tract movement known as the Oxford movement, and uh, this is what gave us um, Saint now, John uh, uh, Newman, John Henry Newman, not to be confused with St. John Nepomuchin Neumann, but St. John Henry Newman um, entered the church being initially part of this conservative Anglican group who's like, yeah, let's go back to our more, you know, more sacramental roots, you know. And it was a departure. The Oxford Movement guys were fooling themselves into thinking that there was this continuity in Anglicanism with ancient Christianity. And the actual honest ones realized this. And that's why Newman said, you know, realized after intense study of uh, the patristic era, especially um, in and around the Council of Nicaea, he realized that Catholic unity was the only way to have authentic Christianity. So he poped. He became he became a Catholic, um, and was made a cardinal late in life. Never was a bishop. He was a priest who was raised to the cardinalational honor, uh, really as an honor from the Pope to 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 show that this long suffering man who had suffered a lot for conversion to the faith should be honored that way. Um, so he's one of the few who are part of the Oxford movement who realized that to have this genuine um, English Catholicism, which is what they were really trying to revive without the name, 
uh, you had to actually enter into Catholic unity. So the three-branch theory says that the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox and other Orthodox bodies like the Russians and Serbians and whatever, uh, all throughout the East, and the Anglicans are all the three branches of authentic Christianity. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that I don't use the phrase Roman Catholic. I do not call myself a Roman Catholic, uh, not just because I, quote, don't identify as one. It's, 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 it's bigger than that. I don't call myself Roman Catholic uh, because the term is an invention of the Anglicans. We simply called ourselves Catholics for all of those years. Um, and if you go into the East, where they refer to somebody as Rum Catholique, um, it's an entirely different thing. It means an Eastern Catholic, um, because they're not talking about Rome, the city. They're talking about Rome, the empire. So it's a very confusing term. I mean, it's, it's not confusing today, I suppose, in the West anyway. By Roman Catholic, we mean Catholic. But the unfortunate thing is when we identify somebody as a Roman Catholic and he happens to be of the Eastern Rite, well, then what? <laughs> uh, then, then the poor guy is, is labeled as a Roman Catholic, which in, in his um, sui iuris church, like say he's a Ukrainian Catholic, is going to be kind of a contradiction because he's a Catholic who worships in a non-Roman rite. He worships in the rite of Kiev, essentially. So, yeah, that's an aside, but this is because of the three-branch theory and because of the way that it was articulated by these Anglicans, I reject the term Roman Catholic, which is essentially an Anglican invention. So uh, let's continue to talk about uh, the, the actual church unity octave itself. So these men, Father Paul and some of his fellows, realized that um, authentic y- unity can only be found in the church. And that's why when they began to pray, when they began to pray for real church unity, even if their ideas were confused in their own minds, even if there were some confused concepts, <clears throat> like this three-branch theory. These men obviously had goodwill. They were praying. They wanted the Holy Ghost. They were su- supple to the work of the Holy Ghost. They were docile to God's will. And through this prayer, many of them converted, including Father Paul, including Mother Lorana, and many who entered with them into the Catholic Church. And it was, by the way, it was St. Pius X, who personally um, directed that Father Paul of Graymore go to a seminary for a certain very limited time to kind of get brought up to speed on certain you know, certain Catholic things that a practicing Catholic priest is going to have to know, uh, who transfers from being an Anglican minister. Um, so he and and he ordered that he be ordained and 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 so forth. So Saint Pius X, and there's a statue of him still to this day. There's a statue of him on the grounds of uh, Graymore in Garrison, New York, uh, and very near to the tomb of Father Paul, by the way. There's a statue of St. Pius X, because um, he's the one who ordered him to be, yeah, accepted into the church, made a priest, and um, approved the work of this, of this community. 